Buongiorno, and welcome to the Global Podcast, where we keep you up to date on the latest trends and insights on diplomacy and international development. I'm your host, Jesu Antonio Baez, Director of Pax Techum Global Consultancy, based here in London, which produces this series. In this podcast, I sit down with thought leaders, diplomats, and experts on the field, as well as provide analysis from our own team at Pax to talk more about the need for diplomacy in international development in order to foster political will around greater social impact and good. So grab your headphones and let's get on with the show. On today's episode of the Global Podcast, we're going to be talking about COVID-19, or the coronavirus pandemic, to better understand the effect it is having on various parts of the globe, which seem quite underrepresented or considered in the general media coverage of the crisis. A unique aspect of this virus since its appearance in the Chinese city of Wuhan's wet markets in late January of this year is its prevalence in mainly highly developed countries, which has been among its peculiarities, leading ultimately to global shutdowns, travel disruptions to major key cosmopolitan cities, and exposing leadership weaknesses within many Western nations, from the United States' disunity in handling the crisis to the United Kingdom's slow response in terms of social distancing and toilet paper limiting. But what about Africa? Latin America? And what about the extremely vulnerable populations such as the refugee camps found in both Bangladesh and also within Greece? Though many analysts are harking that the coronavirus could cripple developing countries more than the West, the actual evidence on the ground is quite different. Yet also, the potential effect of this virus could have, post-pandemic, highly diverse if one takes in consideration the context. And we'll be diving into that context today. Joining us to discuss these dynamics are Dr. Ryan Lloyd, Dr. Theodora Peppera, and Lauren Anders-Brown. Dr. Ryan Lloyd is a visiting assistant professor of international studies at Center College in Daneville, Kentucky. He was awarded his PhD in government in 2016 from the University of Texas, Austin, and has written in academic and non-academic settings on Brazilian politics. He joins us to discuss about Latin America and specifically Brazilian dynamics with COVID-19. Dr. Peppera is a Ghanaian gynecologist who qualified from the University of London, undertaking higher training mainly at teaching hospitals in London, including St. Mary's Hospital, Royal Free Hospital, Hammersmith Hospital, and St. George's Hospital as well. She was also appointed as consultant gynecologist at Guy's and St. Thomas Hospital in London. Since 2013, she has been involved in developing cervical cancer prevention courses for Ghanaian doctors and nurses and has since run 14 workshops and is helping develop the national protocols for screening and prevention. She joins us to discuss the medical dynamics from the African lens, particularly from Ghana. And finally, Lauren Anders-Brown is an award-winning independent filmmaker and photographer with experience in over 40 countries and a focus on healthcare and humanitarian issues in low-resource settings, including conflict zones. 
She joins us to discuss the standpoint from the humanitarian sector and particularly vulnerable communities such as refugees. Without a doubt, we have very qualified people joining us. So to everybody, welcome to the Global Podcast and trust you are all staying safe. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Yes, nice and safe. And may I ask for the sake of the listeners who are hopefully in quarantine as well and maybe not going stir crazy, where are you all currently quarantined and calling in from just so our listeners don't feel so alone? Maybe Lauren, with you first. I'm in a very unusual place to be in quarantine. Um, my a fiancé who's a doctor is has been stationed in Bermuda helping with the Ministry of Health and the hospital for the COVID response here. So I'm currently quarantined in Bermuda. Okay, I think there could be other places where it could be worse. How about you, Dr. Peppera? Um, I'm currently quarantined at my home in Ghana. I have a home in the UK as well, and uh, I actually got trapped by the travel restrictions in Ghana. I should have been in the UK at this point. All right. <laughs> and how about you, uh, Dr. Lloyd? Uh, I'm quarantined in uh, about as far away, I guess, from those other two as you can get, uh, Danville, Kentucky, with my cat Larry. So, At least you're yeah. not alone in that sense. Yes. Yes, well, I'm joining. And if you, if you hear anything in the background, that's him playing around with his toys, unfortunately. It's okay. We'll consider. <laughs> I think when it comes to quarantine and working from home, we have uh, the habitual background noise. And I am not in our podcast studio in London. I am also trapped from traveling in Casablanca, Morocco. So if there is the habitual call to prayer in the background, I'm sure we can all uh, we can all forgive the scenery then in that case. But wonderful uh, that we can all join and really discuss about these aspects. So I really wanted to go ahead and discuss these because I do feel that there has been general coverage highlighting about the issues that are going on in Western Europe. We've been seeing uh, the chaos that has been unfolding within the United States, particularly, or in this case, the disunited States, between what New York is doing, what Florida is not doing, and what California should be doing. And it's constantly putting one in a state of panic. Yet at the same time, we're finding many analysis within a political aspect and even uh, health experts looking at the developing world, quote unquote, and, and saying how the pandemic will become an explosion, apocalyptic, end of the world, second coming of Jesus kind of scenario once it, quote unquote, unfolds. Um, but, you know, we, we have been seeing this pandemic unfolding as the weeks progress. And, of course, there are two of us in this podcast that are currently within the African continent at, at present. So I guess in this case, uh, Dr. Pepper, I kind of want to take it towards you. You know, let's turn yeah. towards the health aspect, particularly in Africa. And Africa is not particularly new to pandemics. I mean, there was Ebola not too long ago, and there have been many other crises that have gone on. But it seems that the media points towards Africa as going to be this really post-apocalyptic sense and that they're ill-equipped and unprepared and they're not going to know what to do. Um, but, you know, from my am- angle, from being even here in Morocco, I, I see it quite differently and the contrary. So what has been the take from a medical standpoint from, from the West African point, but mainly in Ghana? What has been Ghana doing? Well, I think in in Ghana, we're looking at what's going on in the West as somewhat apocalyptic. Um, And certainly we don't see it the way um, you mentioned it's being viewed. Uh, What's become clear is that I think the the number of African countries I'm aware of, um, such as Rwanda, South Africa and Ghana, even Nigeria, were fairly swift to close their borders 
once they started picking up imported cases. I mean, let's face it, they're all in the, we actually have uh, 79% of our current cases uh, have, have, are directly imported. I think the health aspects, um, uh, we've actually had, uh, I mean, at the moment, our, our first case was picked up in a month ago on the 12th of March. Um, and uh, we now are standing at um, 378 with six deaths, which compared to what we hear going on um, in, in the West, uh, we, we are actually struggling to understand um, why our rate is, is so low at the moment. Certainly, I think we realized very early on that we would not have ac access to thousands of ventilators. The Ghana Medical Association was very quick in pressuring the government for a lockdown, which actually took two or three weeks for the government to finally um, do that lockdown. We're, we're now at the, uh, I think we're at day 11, and it was announced yesterday that we're going for another week um, beyond the original two weeks that was planned, because we realized this was really going to be our only way of combating this and um, it's been draconian it's not been easy because we have a relatively poor in infrastructure but it, it seems to be working we out of the 378 cases um, and and the success we have two people on ventilators and the uh, remaining 100 200 odd, odd are I mean mild to moderate cases and some of them asymptomatic picked up through contact tracing there's been quite rigorous um enhanced contact tracing going on because we realize we don't have the medical resources to manage in the way that the uk um us and and europe are uh, even they're struggling but we realized very early on we'd have no hope uh, precisely, and that has also been the scene that many have been portraying that could happen within African countries. That you know, should COVID really take take hold within the continent, that it would be complete hellfire in that sense. But in a way, is COVID really having the toll on the health system currently within within Ghana, as one has predicted, or has it been the opposite effect? For example, in Morocco, they've equally taken such measures that they they were just swift in saying everything is shut no one's doing anything because yes. they knew that if it goes crazy it's going to overwhelm them has Ghana taken that measures too and has has that been a success for them in that sense well i think originally on the on the 15th of march um Ghana announced that anybody returning from overseas should put themselves into self-quarantine for 14 days and also advise about social distancing, hand washing, etc., um, avoiding, you know, gatherings. And it was clear that this was not being adhered to, which is why the, um, the Ghana Medical Association said to the government, you've got to enforce this lockdown. Now, we're not in a situation to do a nationwide lockdown, but I mean, what they've saw is that the 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 epicenters shall we say um accra where our international airport is uh, had the majority of cases and then the next um main town up from that kumasi had the next number of cases so those two areas are the ones in quite a uh, severe lockdown simply because i think they had to get the message across that we, we don't have the infrastructure. What's been great is the improvement in sanitation 
all round. And uh, and I think, um, you know, being locked in with the politicians, there's this drive to improve the health service in general. So, uh, I, I, you know, in, in some ways, some of the population, when you, you speak to people, are actually in, enjoying this improved um, sanitation health service that we seem to be developing. Um, we've been given uh, uh, free water for the next three months so that nobody has excuse of no water, not to wash their hands. Um, and lower uh, income populations are being given a 50 cent discount on electricity. To, so it, it's actually having, rather than a, a negative effect in some respects, a positive effect on our health system. Well, that's excellent. That's actually something, it's excellent to hear in that aspect because, again, this doesn't seem to be quite covered, uh, no. particularly within the media outlets. But and, and clearly, the Ghanaian response has been far more stronger than what we're seeing in the UK, where it took Boris Johnson, the prime minister, uh, weeks just to finally say, all right, people, maybe don't go jogging. Um, but in that aspect, do you feel that perhaps things can be done better uh, from the West African standpoint, or you think they're doing the best that they can with the current knowledge that they have? I think things could be done better. I think uh, the lockdown should have come earlier. Um, we were uh, too reliant on this temperature screening at the airport as, uh, as, as you know, the the way of keeping um, uh, COVID-19 out of Ghana, which was never going to work given that uh, most people are asymptomatic. So I think that, that you know, it, we, we've been slow, but I'll say that we are catching up. I find it a bit frustrating that we've had months head start on everything, and yet we seem to be waiting. It's not till we had the first cases diagnosed that we then started doing more testing. And now they're in a situation where they are now trying to develop test centers because we've only been able to test 37,000 um, in the last month. Uh, so, um, and I think of, of the 37,000 samples they've taken, only 14,500 have actually been tested to give us the 378. So I think we're, we're way behind. And, and myself and a number of other um, uh, people in the medical system have said, let's not be complacent about the small numbers. I mean, this is what we're driving at. Let's not be complacent and test, test, test. And that message is finally getting through that we, if we pat ourselves on the back with small numbers, it's because we're not testing enough. Right. And, and hopefully that is going to be the indicator that they have to really provoke them to continue to do the testing yes and to continue they're developing to new centers now well that's also excellent to hear that they're at least developing those centers and being proactive and and yes. and at least learning as they go so yes it, it seemed at least from your comments there is still there's a bright sight at the end of it all despite the confusion yes. i guess turning it towards the next continent and toward towards latin america and bringing you in uh, Dr. Lloyd, on this aspect, let's take a look at COVID-19 there because, you know, I happen to also be of Latin American origin myself. And from what I'm seeing in, in my own Dominican Republic, seems that COVID-19 isn't really the medical pandemic that one is fearing, but seems to be far more political and, and having more <laughs> social economic impact than one can have. So, you know, with Brazil becoming the center of its attention. So can you give us a brief summary on, on what's going on with COVID uh, in Brazil at present? 
Uh, where to start? Um, so to be completely honest, if I have to sum up the Brazilian government's response to coronavirus in one word, I, I probably can't say it on this podcast. Um, <laughs> I just say it starts with Kla and ends with Usterfuck. Um, <laughs> it's really been an unmitigated disaster. Um, and it starts with the president. Um, there's been essentially no coordinated um, federal response to coronavirus as of now. And actually, let me revise that. Um, I think if there had been absolutely no coordinated response to coronavirus, it would have been an improvement on what's been happening thus far. Okay. Because the president has actively been downplaying coronavirus and agitating for business to go on as normal. And just uh, yesterday, he uh, was eating lunch in, um, in a bakery, mingling with supporters. He did it again today. He, after his trip from the U.S., when he had um, a, when 21 people in his delegation tested positive for coronavirus, and his results have not been have have been, were first confirmed positive and then not confirmed positive, and no one entirely knows what happened there because his son confirmed to Fox News that he had tested positive and then accused them of lying. So it, it's a bit complicated there. <laughs> but uh, Bolsonaro, uh, the, the the president, went and. Um, had a rally and called for rallies against Congress and the, judici the judiciary a few days later and went and appeared in front of everyone and shook hands uh, about, I saw a count of maybe about about a, about a 280 hands mm. and actively said, he said that the coronavirus is just a little cold. He's, yes, uh, yet I believe two days ago he went into a, he went uh, on national TV, and once again, and he said that he's gone back only a little bit now. He's now saying, "Oh, it turns out coronavirus is a bit of a problem, but we need to worry about how pe people should still be able to try to sell, to try to make a living, um, and businesses shouldn't be closed." And he's now been touting. Um, I, I, I think the English translation is, is chloroquine. I, I believe that's what it is. Is essentially a cure all. Chloroquine, yeah. Yeah. Chloroquine. Yeah, chloroquine. Yeah, he's been touting this as, uh, in national. Um, just two days ago, in a national television address, he touted it as as a cure all. Um, said he's been talking to doctors and it's been curing everyone, and they've been getting more, and they're going to get more of it from India. And um, it's just been. It, incredibly problematic, the response to the federal government. And what it means is that it's really rested on um, the state governments to go and solve the problem themselves. Much like the United um, States in that aspect, if you think about it, because just as when mm. the federal government has been absent, really coordinating uh, a mm. united front in regards to how to combat it, leaving the states to basically you know fend for themselves, we're seeing that in Brazil. And at the same mm. aspect, I'm wondering as well, too, if as well, mm -hmm. as you've indicated, Bolsonaro has been very much touting that this is just a flu, you know, it's not mm -hmm. a big deal, and Brazil can't, you know, can't shut down. But mm -hmm. clearly, you know, there are, there are people protesting in the streets, you know, whereas people in London are patting uh, baseball bats and pots and pans to say we support the NHS. In Sao Paulo, it's mm -hmm. more, you know, get out, Bolsonaro, what are you doing? Kind of a yeah. deal. How much... Mm -hmm. of this can it possibly be where the actual side effect of 
COVID-19 mm-hmm. could be the political downfall of Bolsonaro, or is that too soon to, mm. to say? Because it seems his, his supporters seem to be looking at him and thinking, um, Houston, we, we have a problem and it's a virus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think it's too early to say that. Um, so to give you an example, um, you see uh, generally some sort of rally around the flag um, effect in most countries that are facing coronavirus when it comes to the pre- presidential approval ratings. Um, and even in the U.S., where Trump's uh, response has been controversial and belated, um, he's gotten a boost of about f- maybe four to five percentage points in most polls. So you'd say that he's gotten a little bit of a bounce, although it's been a very small one when compared to what we've seen in, say, Italy. Bolsonaro has actually been in free fall in the polls. Um, he's down to about you're the low 30s or high 20s when it comes to approval rating. And this is in the midst of when most people are getting a, a rally around the, f- the flag effect. And um, just for comparison, you might think, well, you know, Brazil might just not have this rally around the flag effect. Uh, his health minister, um, Mandetta, is in the mid 70s right now. And uh, the governors of Sao Paulo and Rio who are who got elected on the back of supporting Bolsonaro, they're in the mid in the low to mid 50s they've all gone up and bolsonaro is essentially the only person that has gone down and gone down significantly he had been in maybe the mid to high 40s before this and you've been having um this pot banging again pot banging is is, is a very traditional form of protest in brazil um with screams of bolsonaro out it's been kind of a constant just about every day and especially every day in which he makes a national uh, address on tv you will see that in major cities um, nowadays. Um, it's becoming very difficult for him to sustain his position. And um, you've also there's also been a lot of really damaging news coming out in um, from behind the scenes. Um, so there was some reporting that said that Bolsonaro seems to be kind of losing his grip essentially on his emotional grip, as in he was openly crying in in in, in meetings um, with people that weren't actually close confidence of confidants of him his vice his vice president is um a retired general and he has been openly contradicting bolsonaro the health minister was again has really become a bit of a star now um because he has been very outspoken about trying to tell people what to do about coronavirus, even though he is openly contradicting his own president. And he has said that it's possible the health system in Brazil is going to enter into collapse when Bolsonaro is saying the exact opposite, that it's under control. So Bolsonaro openly considered firing um, his health minister this past Monday. And essentially you had both the, the heads of both the House of Congress and his own cabinet stand up to him and say this can't happen. So it's and I believe about it's it's about in the high 30s now in in the last polls I've seen saying the Bolsonaro should resign. So it's not a majority yet, but about 17 percent of the people who voted for him uh, in another recent poll said that they regret their vote. And given how polarized Brazil was during that time, um, I think that's a very significant um, data point to take into account. Um, Bolsonaro is, 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 is very isolated politically right now. He doesn't really have a whole lot of – he has pretty much no elite level supporters left, um, even among people he's appointed. And he's getting down to his hardcore support in the population as well.
Precisely, and we can agree that the fact that he has become very delusional when it comes to undermining the threat of, uh, of, of, of COVID-19. But if there's one thing that he is mentioning, which, you know, which I, I regret agreeing with, but I, I do see where he's coming from, is the fact that Brazil, in theory, can't afford shutting down. And that I kind of mm-hmm. want to take towards the notion of, of the communities, you know, who, you know, we know Latin America well, you're either rich or you're poor. And for those poor, quarantine yes. can, can suffer. I, mm-hmm. You know, he, he, Brazil is recovering from a recession, and but of course that recovering mm-hmm. was was another story. But those who live in the favelas and those who are actually based in the favelas, which is a tight co- community, how much effect would a quarantine have on these communities in that sense? And and how much mm-hmm. of it, you know, what is the dynamics for them when it comes to coronavirus? I think there's a difference between in theory and in practice, unfortunately, because um, in theory, I think that this could be. It could be very difficult, you know, given that a lot of people work in the informal sector. And so if they're not allowed to go out of their homes um, and work, then they could face real problems in terms of being able to make a living. Uh, In practice, um, while there are economic effects, um, from what I'm hearing um, and from what I've been reading, um, and both anecdotally and from what we are seeing in recent studies on how well isolation uh, self-isolation has actually been working in places like Sao Paulo, I don't think it's really being actually observed. For instance, there were there have been a lot of... Life in some places is going on kind of as normal with people just out in the street, which is a big problem um, in, in a lot of ways. So to give you an example, uh, some recent... Uh, a, a recent study using cell phone data that was released to the pre- uh, that was released to the press just yesterday. Um, this is by a private company. Uh, showed that uh, São Paulo, the state of São Paulo, has been has been aiming for about say seventy percent isolation, a, re- a reduction in 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 movement by about to by about seventy percent. And they're getting to it's it's actually really slacking off now. It's now at about maybe f- in the fifties. And the governor of Sao Paulo is now threatening to arrest people out in public because he's so frustrated that he can't get people to actually observe the quarantine. So, and and I be, and from what I've heard in places like the favelas, um, they are holding even less uh, to the quarantine for for obvious reasons. Uh, there was some that there's a, a great anecdote actually about how in Rio in, in in social media, the people that were actually doing the quarantining were the or was organized crime because they were afraid of the results of the coronavirus. And so messages were were going around um, purportedly from um, the Red Command, the main main gang in in Rio, um, saying, stay home. Uh, We are having a curfew of 8 8 p.m. If we we see you at after that time, we'll teach you to respect your neighbor. And if the government won't do it, if the government won't do anything, organized crime will will will, will solve the problem. Wow. <laughs> which is wow. which is uh, yeah. uh, taking it mm. to a whole different level. Uh, and yeah. I do want to take it now to to keeping the focus on the underserved communities. I, I do want to take the notion mm-hmm. towards the refugee communities and those who are finding themselves mm-hmm. uh, in, in a particular situation in which they are too vulnerable to do quarantine. And Lauren, I do want to take these these questions mm-hmm. now towards you. So turning more towards the vulnerable communities, I think we can all agree this world is teaching us that those who can quarantine are truly becoming privileged, uh, which is the cases that we're seeing, particularly in refugee communities um, and in underserved areas where it's almost a double death, where they ask, do I die from corona or do I die from hunger? 
And for Lauren, for you who have worked in these particular areas that are prone to pandemics, what do you feel is the greatest risk to vulnerable communities such as refugees and the extreme poor and underserved areas when faced with corona? Thanks, uh, Jezu. So, you know, it's really interesting to look at my experiences um, in the in different refugee settings. Last October, I was in Zatari refugee camp in Jordan, where I've done a reasonable amount of filming. Uh, it's the world's largest Syrian refugee camp, uh, and so far, it's done it's done good work in shutting down social services to support isolation. It's I think become one of the larger cities in Jordan now. Um, it's extended power distribution to allow children who have access to smartphones to do distance learning. They have their own water distribution system, like for each of the different shelter areas, and they you know the population there. From my experiences, they have a good trusted relationship with the healthcare services in the camp. But this is I mean Zathri has always been an anomaly, um, and I. Think I think lots of different anthropologists and humanitarians always look towards it as an interesting example of something that's been different. Because, you know, when I look at the access for healthcare in Cox's Bazaar in Bangladesh, you know, many times it could mean walking an hour, hour and a half to try and get any kind of services because of the lunar-like landscapes and just how the, the camp is laid out. People are extremely cramped. They live in makeshift shelters, uh, garbage bags and bamboo, and they're living with, uh, you know, about six to eight people in each of these shelters. So isolation is really not an option. And each of these shelters are right next to each other. And quarantine is not an option. Um, but something that is interesting with uh, refugee and migrant populations is, is their age. So we know that COVID-19 affects people most over the age of 60. And when I think back to the people and a lot of the filming and the people I've met in these areas, um, you know, and I actually looked it up less for both the Rohingya population and the Syrian population, less than 5% of their populations in the group are over 60. So that's not to say that they're not, auto, you know, immune compromised or that they don't have asthma or other issues to deal with. But um, it's interesting that that most of the age of the refugee population are of the age group that that could manage and, and deal with COVID. It doesn't mean it's not going to spread. Doesn't mean it's not going to go past those those camps and those communities. But um, that is something I think that's quite interesting when it comes to COVID nineteen. Um, but you know, access to hygiene is the first step in access to healthcare, and the hygiene management in a lot of these places is really really challenging. Whenever I think of this, I think of uh, I did an interview with a young woman. Her name is Sunday. She's 17 years old. Uh, she was in the protection of civilians camp in South Sudan. And I was interviewing her for a documentary on menstruation, how she manages it and, and you know, the stigmas around it and stuff. And I'll never forget this. She said that the most important thing that she can have when she has her menstruation is soap. It's one of the most expensive things to acquire in the protection of civilians camp. And to her, it's the most important thing because it means that she can clean herself properly to be able to continue going to school and not have that be interrupted. And, you know, now we're, I look at soap in a very different way because it's the only thing really keeping us safe from this virus, uh, at least the most reliable thing to keep us keep us safe. So if she struggles to get soap to manage her, her, her menstruation for four to seven days a month, you know, how how I've, I, you know, I can only imagine how the um, protection of civilian camps, uh, people in South Sudan are struggling with trying to keep any kind of hygiene routine that could keep them safe from COVID-19. I literally feel like a, a bar of soap now is like a bar of gold when I pick it up because I just know that not everyone has access to that. And I think the last big challenge uh, that 
uh, from what I could tell that especially the Rohingya, uh, basically a lot of, of refugee and migrant groups that I've worked with, the, one of their challenges and that's unique for them, but not too much for us now is trusting the government. You know, we may feel our governments have failed us at the, while we're in the height of this, but for refugees, like their governments failed them quite some time ago. And now they're at the, the mercy of the governments of their host communities. And that, that's asking for a whole new set of trust, a whole new, like, you know, people have to try and, you know, at, you know for us coming together in the, you know, in the UK, in, in New York, you know, there's, there's a lot of solidarity. But, I mean, to try and ask people to, to, tr- to just willingly trust in a government that's not their own and they didn't trust their last one before, I think is a lot. So there's a lot of different, uh, aside from, of course, the mental health impact that this is going to have. I mean, clearly, if there's one thing this crisis is giving us is really two key aspects. Perspective, you know, like you said, it's allowing us to really look at the value of things like soap and toilet paper and where for us, we may be struggling to get a bit in the supermarket. You know, for them, it's just been a struggle full stop. And of course, mm-hmm. you know, vulnerability. One is vulnerable in every aspect, whether it's mentally, but for the refugee population, it's extreme. And because, of course, they are a within a host country. So I'm wondering from your end, is there any humanitarian response or any response from government that you are aware of um, that is doing something to support them? Or if not, you know, what can governments or humanitarian organizations or even UN agencies, what can be done to support them uh, in order to stop the spread but also stop the other aspects of, the, of, this, of this pandemic, which of course is having a mental and uh, emotional effect on us all? Um, so there's two things. I think... Um like I said, access to hygiene is the first step in access to healthcare and access to healthcare is one way that we can, you know, to supplies, to support, you know, is, is one way that we can try and, and slow the, the pandemic and the spread. And I think Portugal has done an amazing thing by granting uh, migrants and refugees temporary status so they can access those services. You know, I mean, it's not rocket science. It's just, it's just fulfilling a basic human right that most of these people have been neglected of because they haven't had any, you know, technical, documented, legal claim to abide by where they are. And so by, you know, taking away that fear and that barrier of being able to access services, you know, you know, in theory is, is supposed to encourage them to be able to come forward. If Should they present with a case? Should they need access or help and services? I mean, the disability communities, that's a whole other topic that we haven't talked about, but I've just recently had to do a small film on that. Um, you know, being a migrant and having a disability, you know, not being able to access health services could be, you know, have a huge huge impact as well. So um, I think Portugal's done a really good job by by taking down that barrier. Um, and I'm sorry, what was the other question you had, Jezu? Uh, and also in regards to stopping the spread as well, but I believe you did definitely answer that question in regards to what governments can do. And I did see that in what they've done. And I just thought it was just such a brilliant way. And it's allowing us to really, this this if there's one thing this crisis is teaching us, is that we are definitely all united in regards to how we're affected. I mean, the, I think the one benefit of this crisis is that it's allowed for the ceasefires in Yemen and in Syria accordingly, because they mm-hmm. realize, well, it doesn't matter who, if whether you're Houthi or, or or you're a rebel, you're you're going to get sick irrespective, and we'll just die from this if we don't take it serious. But to wrap this up accordingly, I do want to give each and every one of you a final point, and perhaps for about three minutes uh, in regards to. You know what you feel that the general media is getting in regarding coverage of COVID. How is it getting it wrong, and what what must be 
done instead to actually learn from the COVID experience within the developing countries? Uh, let's start with let's start with you, Dr. Pepper. Um, well, I I've seen uh, you know I watch Sky News and CNN and BBC World News etc. And I've seen very little on on what's been going on in um, well particularly Ghana. And I mean, listening to what's going on in Brazil, I mean, I, I take back any negative thing I've said about our president because um, he's been at the forefront giving regular um, presidential updates every few days as to what's going on, what measures need to be tightened, what, you know, um, and what they're doing to help the economy and also help the, the poor. They're actually just directly feeding people in the ghettos in order to keep them from stepping out, although some people are still stepping out. I, I just think it's not that difficult for them to look for the answers. I mean, it, it's all here, but I think it's maybe not the story that they want to tell because it doesn't fit with their narrative of the apocalypse. Precisely. And also in a way of which is I'm getting at and I'm seeing this from Morocco, the the you know, the poor, underprivileged, you know, woe is me Africa story which they have been feeding mm. for so long. And I and I do feel we're we're seeing the tides turn on that aspect. Um, Dr. Lloyd, how about you? What do you feel uh, that the media is getting wrong in the COVID coverage within the developing world and what should be said instead? I think that there should be more of a distinction made between places in the developing world that are doing a good job of combating the virus. And I think Argentina, from what I've seen, has done a pretty good job. They reacted very quickly and, and forcefully in closing their borders um, and enforcing quarantine. Uh, so, for instance, making a distinction between a place like Argentina and a place like Brazil, um, because it's not necessarily the fact that Brazil is a part of the developing world that is doing a bad job. It's the fact that Brazil's president is delusional, as you put it. He was elected on Trump's coattails in some ways, and he's adapting a Trump like philosophy to Brazil, except he's even doubling down on it more than Trump has, because Trump has at least gone back on what he said, and it's started to take this very seriously, and he still hasn't. So in some ways, it's maybe making that distinction between, as you put it, a post-apocalyptic scenario for the developing world as a whole, and drawing distinctions between different places that are doing different things, some of which are working quite well, and some of which um, are likely to prove to be disasters. Perfect. And and Lauren, the last word to you. Yeah, so um, obviously the media is quite close to my work and what I do, and I, I take my role as a content creator quite seriously. And I've had to look at my own work and the, and the way that I present things and just be very sensitive to the timing and, you know, understand that a lot of people can't be with loved ones right now. They can't be, you know, they're, they're stuck in their homes with whoever they're stuck with. And so, you know, important things for, you know, I'd love for the media to really consider are, you know, how many people are you showing in a photograph or an image, especially if it was taken at a different time. The point is, is that we're in this time right now. And so showing, you know, imagery or, or film or photographs of, of people holding hands or in groups and stuff can just, it can actually affect more of the, have more of a mental impact on the people watching it. And, you know, when they say stop the spread, that applies to the media as well and stop the spread of fear. You know, fear, we have to carefully choose our words and we need to also focus on science-based evidence and not on profiteering. 
Thank you. And I think that was brilliantly said, particularly the stop of the spread of fear, because I think that ultimately is going to be the real killer for everyone is the fear that it is really inducing globally and 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 hopefully they, they take a hint out of this in that aspect. Well, it has been a pleasure having each and every one of you providing your experiences uh, to the show and hopefully provide the enlightenment it needs to during these very dark, dark days. So, Dr. Peppera, Dr. Lloyd, and Lauren, thank you very much for being with us on The Global Podcast. That brings us to the end of this edition of The Global Podcast. I'm Jesu Antonio Baez, Director of Pax Tech and Global Consultancy, which produces this series. Please do check out our website at www.paxtechumglobal.org That's P-A-X-T-E-C-U-M-G-L-O-B-A-L dot org to discover more about our work. You can also follow this podcast and the work of PAX on both Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you like this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and of course subscribe on both Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Join us next week for another edition, and until next time, grazie e ci sentiamo presto. Ciao!